All right. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good, good. Uh, I'm not 100% today, so that's why I'm going to do our cameraman a great favor and just stay in one spot uh, seated today. I love watching that video. Loved our worship time this morning as well. Wasn't that great? And uh, then to get to see what God is doing through the church plant in Peru, that was really fantastic. You raised over $77,000 to make that church plant happen. So thank you for doing that. It's, yes, absolutely. Praise God. And we're thankful for you being a part of that. The fact that we get to partner with them to make that happen. What a beautiful facility too. I wish $77,000 would go as far here. That was really amazing. Uh, you also sponsor 168 kids, and that's over 100 families there that are being lifted out of poverty in Jesus' name. So thank you so much for doing that. I also want to take this opportunity to remind you, though, that there are lots of other ministries and missionaries that First Free Church supports, both in the St. Louis area and all around the world. So there's so much more that's going on beyond what you just saw. We could, we could have another 30, 40 videos like that. And when you give to support First Free Church, we then distribute those funds to those different ministries as well. So if you are someone who has not started giving yet to support your church, I want to encourage you to make sure you start doing that. Go to efree.org slash give and be a part of what God is doing here, uh, not just by coming and listening, but also by giving. And that's an act of obedience to God and worship to him as well. I also want to invite you to participate in another way, which is we are currently going through a leadership selection process with regard to elders, deacons, and our nominating committee. So if you know of a guy who is a really godly man, shows the fruit of the Spirit in his life, has a lot of wisdom, and you think he'd be a good fit for our oversight board, that would be a great person to go to and say, hey, I'd like to nominate you. Are you willing to be nominated? And then go to efree.org slash nominate and nominate them to be an elder. Same thing for deacons. If you know a man or a woman who just shows the fruit of the Spirit, they have a wonderful servant's heart, uh, please ask them if they're willing and then nominate them to be a deacon at the same place. And then we also are accepting nominations for our nominating committee, which consists of three members of the church and then two elders, who are also, of course, members of the church, who provide the important function of interviewing and, and filtering and really praying for to see who is God's person for our elder board and our deacon board. So those are things that you can do to be involved here. Just go to efree.org slash nominate. Well, many of you know that years ago, Jenny and I lost twin babies, and it was a very difficult time for us. What you may not know is that sometime after that, when our daughter was born, she had a ton of health issues, and it was a very scary time for us. Anytime you lose a baby, then anything that happens after that, two subsequent babies, you, you immediately think, oh, is this the same thing happening again? Are we going to lose our child? And we really did think we were going to lose her for a while. Uh, she struggled a lot right after she was born and for many months after that, and we had to have her hooked up. We had her in the hospital for a while, then hooked up to stuff at home, and it was a really scary time for us. But along the way, we saw a lot of specialists to try to find out what is wrong with her. And there were a number of issues, so I won't go through all of them. Um, but we saw one specialist who gave us advice that if we had followed it, would not only not have solved the problem, it would have created more problems for her. So obviously, we did not want to follow that. But thankfully, we got other opinions, and we ended up getting connected with some really good people and one really good specialist in particular who gave us great advice and insight into what was going on. 
left up to me, I would have had no idea how to treat this. In fact, the specific issue we were dealing with at the time, I probably would have thought, well, maybe she'll grow out of it. But um, this specialist said, no, there's no way. She's going to need actually multiple surgeries that she's going to have to go through to deal with this. When he said that to us, our response was not, how judgmental of you. It can't be that bad. No, our response was, thank you for telling us. We're actually paying you for this information. We were paying him for his judgment in this case. We needed to know. We wanted to know. And if it's going to save potential pain and suffering down the road and consequences down the road, we want that good judgment. Even if, even if we don't like it, even if it's not going to be fun, even if it's going to cost a lot of money, which it did, it's still better than the consequences of what could happen down the road. And if you trust that that person has your best interest at heart, you want that good judgment. Sometimes good judgment is hard to hear, but if it's, if it's in the best interest of us, if it is um, from someone who can kind of see down the road, has experience in this, and knows, hey, this is gonna be a problem for you, then it's wise for us to listen to that good judgment. And that sort of sets the stage for what I wanna talk about today. I want, us, I want us to look for good judgment, and I want us to be willing to listen to it. Judge, judgment has a bad rap for a lot of us. We think of judgmentalism. It's sort of a pejorative term. But there are a lot of things that are not good for us, even if we don't realize it in the moment. And if we're wise and we have a specialist and expert that can give us good judgment, then we need to listen to that and follow that. Now, we've learned throughout this series that God has a design for us. He has a design for marriage. He has a design for even sexuality. And we've talked a little bit about God's boundaries for his design and what happens when we go outside of his design. And today we're going to explore that even further. And here is the question for today, and uh, I think we're probably in good shape, but parents, you need to know that we're, what we're going to talk about today. If God designed marriage as a man and a woman, the first one's Adam and Eve, coming together in covenant with each other, and sexual intimacy to both reproduce more humans and reinforce that covenant, we've already talked about that in the series, then here's the question. Is there a reason why two men or two women can't at least honor half of that design. That they can't come together in a marriage covenant with sexual intimacy to reinforce that covenant and honor at least everything up to the reproduction and even with adoption, they can kind of almost get there to honoring the other half as well. In other words, doesn't God's design have exceptions? Yes, God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman, um, but God also said it's not good for man to be alone. And yet we've seen already in this series that there is a, a theology of singleness. In fact, singleness can be a gift of God. So yeah, it's not how God designed people to operate in the very beginning, designed for them to pair up. But then he makes exceptions for that because of the, the way the world has gone in those situations. Uh, we could say the same thing about divorce. Jesus says God hates divorce. But he also says God makes allowances for divorce in certain situations because circumstances dictate that the best thing in that instance would be divorce. In particular, Jesus mentions desertion and adultery as two instances where he says in these cases, it is acceptable. Not because it's what God wants, not because it's part of God's original design, but because of our broken world. This is the best option available. Can we look at same-sex marriage and same-sex sexual intimacy in the same way? Maybe it's not what God originally designed, but it is allowable given the circumstances. It's the the, the best option available for some people. 
given the circumstances and, and the fact that they're attracted to the same sex. That's what one really popular pastor seemed to say a couple weeks ago when he gave a message on this topic. He said that marriage was designed by God to be um, for a man and a woman, but some people with same-sex attraction find remaining single to be, he used the word, unsustainable. So they get married to someone of the same sex for the same reasons that many uh, heterosexual people would get married. But does same-sex marriage or sexual intimacy with the same sex violate God's design in a way that is rebellious, in a way that actually there are consequences involved and it's actually damaging? Or is it just acceptable based on what we know today and how the world has progressed? There's a reason why we've kind of followed the path we have in this series to bring us to this point. It's kind of been building a foundation. Sometimes Christians are known by what we are against more than what we are for. Sometimes we launch right into the stuff that we're against and it's all judgment and shame. And we wanted to go through in this series and build up all of the positive things about how God has designed us, how God has designed our sexuality, how it's a good thing, it's, it's meant for good, and to talk about the positive ways that God designed that. But we do need to talk about the boundaries as well. Sometimes we cross, come across judgmental and legalistic people like the the people you see here. I'm not actually convinced that these people are true followers of Jesus, by the way. I don't know. Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus said, I've not come to condemn you, but to save you. And so I don't think these people really represent Jesus. But in some cases, this is how Christians are perceived. And some people who claim to be Christians do seem to act that way. Our goal for this series is not to be judgmental or shame-based in what we're doing. That's really not our role here. I'm not here to to just place restrictions on people arbitrarily or, or try to communicate that from God's word. What I want to do is introduce people to God's good design. And I want them to meet the specialist who can give them a good judgment and can say, hey, if this isn't going to work out for you, if this is actually going to be harmful for you, then you need to take action. You need to make a change in order to not have that consequence in your life, just like we needed to listen to the specialists in our life. I'm not the judge. You could say I'm a, I'm a messenger, but in a way, I'm even less than that. I would say that as one person put it, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I'm not here to say shame on you or I'm disgusted by you or any of that about any of God's boundaries. Even Jesus didn't do that. I'm here to point you to the good judge. And I want you to see what he has to say about his design and his boundaries and where there are exceptions, where there are allowances, and where we need to make sure we are in line with what he has for us. Let me give us some review so we can get all caught up to speed because really you need all of the prior messages to make sense of what we're gonna talk about today. In the first message, I shared some foundation stones for us for this whole series. First of all, we believe that all people are created by God. They bear God's image. They have value because God values them. They're under the authority of Jesus and they'll find true happiness only when they're obeying him. So you step outside of God's design in ways that go outside of his boundaries. Uh, you rebel against his design and that's not gonna work out well for you. True happiness is only found when obeying Jesus. We believe God's boundaries for sex and gender are designed to protect us and give us the most fulfilling life that glorifies him and honors his design for us. Now then in the second message, I shared some counterfeit foundation stones. I said that real intimacy comes from, uh, the counterfeit foundation stone is that real intimacy comes from sexual activity. 
And another one is that your identity is largely based on your sexual desire and gender expression. But real intimacy is based on closeness, honesty, and love. And there are many aspects of intimacy. In fact, that was, of all the messages in this series so far, that's the one I've received the most feedback on, was the intimacy one. Because a lot of people realized it expanded their perspective of what intimacy can look like. And, and I saw a lot of phones go up and take pictures of that slide with a wheel of all the different aspects of intimacy. And people have been working on that and their relationships, which is awesome. There's so much more to intimacy than just sex. And that's foundational to even today's topic. We also saw the problems with finding our identity in things like work or popularity or physical ability or wealth or sexual desires or gender expression. Those are not the things we're supposed to find our identity in that define us as a person. Your identity, according to God's word, is you're an image bearer of God. You're a broken and sinful person who opposes God, but you're a loved creation, uh, even in your brokenness, and you're so valuable to God that he died to rescue you. That's who you are. And if you trusted in Jesus, your identity gets expanded to be redeemed from and forgiven for sin. A child of God, you have new life in Christ. You're, you have a new mission and purpose in life thanks to him. And you are a citizen of heaven. That's your identity. Don't wrap yourself up in a lot of other identities. We'll talk more about that later. In the third message, we saw that the Bible teaches marriage is a divine institution. God created it. It's a covenant witnessed by God. He's a part of it as well. Sex outside of the marriage breaks that covenant with God. Sexual union is central to the marriage covenant. And marriage and sex are pictures that represent something bigger and better. That's very important to understand. How did God design marriage? In the fourth message, we saw that even though God designed marriage and said it's not good for man to be alone about the first man, there is also a clear theology of singleness in the Bible. Singleness is a perfectly appropriate and fine path for many people to take. In fact, for many, it's a gift that God gives to them, Paul says. So don't think that to be single is to be broken. Singleness can be a gift from God with a higher purpose. And don't think that marriage will make you whole. Don't think that's going to solve everything in your life. We took a little detour to talk about people who are looking to find a spouse and if you're looking for someone, you need to find someone with godly beliefs, values, and character who values others as image bearers of God, who is just as kind as they are attractive and who's more trustworthy than they are wealthy. And then we said, you also need to become that person. You need to be someone with godly beliefs, values, and character who values others as image bearers of God, just as kind, as attractive, and more trustworthy than wealthy. And then last week, we talked about one way to violate God's design for sexual intimacy called lust. And how Jesus raises the bar on what the sin of adultery really is. He says it's not just about the physical action you take. Lusting after someone who is not your marriage covenant partner. Dwelling on that temptation and desire. Lust. That is as bad as the sin of adultery. So that's one way to violate God's design for sexual intimacy. You've got You've got sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant. We talked about that earlier in the series. You've got lust and dwelling, which doesn't even require physical act action. But now I want to ask the question, what about same-sex sexual intimacy? We're going to talk about these in a couple different ways. There's the attraction, and there's the activity, and there's, of course, a lust component that can be involved as well, just as with anyone being attracted to anyone else. And our time is going to be short today. So we're not going to go over every nuance and and possible train of thought that we could. 
If you want more information, we put together a resource page for you at efree.org slash created to connect. And there are a bunch of books and even some videos on there, uh, even organizations on there that you can go to and get more information because there are so many branches to this conversation that there's, we, we would have to take hours and hours and hours to cover everything for every person. So your question or your thought that doesn't get answered today may well be answered, most likely is answered by the resources on that resource page. And if there's something that doesn't get covered there and you have a question about it, please feel free to email me at pastoratefree.org and I will do my best to point you in the right direction. But what I wanna do today is take us to the passages in God's word that specifically reference this issue of same-sex sexual behavior, attraction, intimacy, kind of the whole field of it, and walk through those to see what do they teach us? What does God have for us? We started this whole series by saying, hey, we are under God's authority. We believe in these principles that God has given us for his design for us. And if you don't start with that foundation, you're not gonna agree with anything I have to say today. And I understand that. I get that. But this is where we come from. And so we are going to follow what God says for our lives. And we believe wholeheartedly, and we hope everyone does or will, that if you do this, this is gonna be what's best for your life. And it's going to bring thriving and flourishing in your life, regardless of whatever else happens. Okay, we're going to start in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20 have two verses on this topic. And they read as follows. Do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. I do appreciate that they give us a little description there so I know exactly what they're talking about. And then in chapter 20, if a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, again, both men have committed a detestable act. They must both be put to death for they are guilty of a capital offense. Now, some Christians have read these verses and thought, boom, open and shut case. Need I go on? I mean, it's right there. It's spelled out. That's the answer, but not so fast because... There are other commands nestled in those chapters and between them and around them that I think a lot of us probably don't follow today. For instance, chapter 19, right in between those two chapters I just read from, says, do not wear clothing woven from two different kinds of thread. Now, do me a favor if you can and just grab the tag on the back and look. And if there's a percentage on there, you're in violation of this command. You know, it's like 97% cotton, 3% spandex or something like that or whatever you wear to church. You probably have some multiple kinds of thread and different cloth that you are wearing. And so you are in violation of Levitical law, if that's the case. We don't want to follow that. What about uh, verse 27 of Leviticus 19? Do not trim off the hair on your temples or trim your beards. This would look like a very different church if we followed this, but we don't. What's going on here? This is part of the Mosaic law, the law that was given by God to Moses for the people of it, the nation of Israel at a specific time, in a specific people, in a specific place. And this is not the law that followers of God are under today. This is an old covenant that God made. It's based on God's ultimate moral law, as is our new covenant. But this is not the covenant that God made with us. This is not what we are under. And so you can't point to these verses in Leviticus and say, aha, that is what you need to follow because that was a specific covenant God made with a specific people. And I've talked about that a lot this year already. I won't go into more about it now. I've I've covered that quite a bit this year. But since we're not under that old covenant law anymore, 
and there are lots of other things in there that we don't follow, then maybe same-sex sexual relationships are okay now, just like it's okay to wear different kinds of clothing with multiple types of cloth or to trim your beard hair, those sorts of things. And so what we have to do then is we have to look at the new covenant and see what teaching do we have in the new covenant that would either confirm or deny that possibility. And for that, we're gonna be in three different passages. First Timothy is the first one we're gonna go to. First Timothy chapter one, Paul says to Timothy, for the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching. So Paul says that the law was designed to correct people who are rebellious and ungodly, or to use the language of this series, who rebel against God's design. Murderers, sexually immoral people, people who practice homosexuality are on that list. He's not talking about people who are attracted to the same sex, people who practice homosexuality, even people who force others into slavery. You know, back in Bible times, I've talked about this before, there was no social safety net, and so um, a huge percentage of the whole world was actually in some form of slavery or bond servanthood, and oftentimes it was entered into by choice. Sometimes it was the best option for people. It actually provided for them, and many times it was a very good arrangement. In fact, you had people that were technically slaves but were lawyers and accountants and had other prominent jobs. And, and the, the Romans even got a little upset because you couldn't tell the difference. They just looked like normal people, but technically they were owned by someone else. So it was very different than what we think of today. The Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, condemns forced slavery. And here we see it again. The, the word slave trader it technically refers to man stealer, someone that forces other people into slavery. That's against God's law. That's against God's design. And homosexual activity is right there in that same list. It's against God's law, against his design. Now, some have argued that maybe Paul is talking about a specific kind of homosexual activity. Maybe he's only referring to abusive or coercive, uh, forced homosexual activity. That's not really there in the text, though. And one of the reasons why that gets argued, uh, at least that I've seen, is that, well, maybe Paul didn't really have any examples of what we have today. Back then, it was coercive, it was, it was abusive, it was inappropriate relationships, it was prostitution. But the idea of homosexual relationships that were consensual uh, and even monogamous, I mean, maybe that didn't exist back then. The problem with that is the historical record completely rejects that. The historical record shows us that among the Greeks, among the Romans, even the ancient Egyptians, and even the Canaanites, there are historical records that indicate that there were not only consensual same-sex unions, but even marriages that took place. And so certainly it can't be that Paul was only aware of a bad version of homosexual behavior, and that's all he was limiting. If we jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll see a similar list. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a scary thought. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. 
You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. When Paul says those who do wrong in these ways won't inherit God's kingdom, he means those whose lives are characterized this way. It's how you would identify, that's how you define them. They're a person that that's what their life is about. That's a big part of the life, an ongoing part of the life, a part of the life that they're not trying to get rid of, that they haven't repented of, they haven't moved past. It's not just a struggle for them. This is who they are as a person, and they've embraced that. We know he doesn't mean people who've ever engaged in these activities, because then he says, some of you were like that, but now you've been made right with God through Jesus Christ. And so we know he's not saying anyone who ever does these things can't be in God's kingdom. He's saying the people that on an ongoing basis, this is what their life is like. This is who they are as a person. That is someone who won't be in God's kingdom. It's interesting to me that out of the 10 sinful practices that Paul lists here, sexual sins account for four of those. 40% of the sins Paul lists are sexual related sins. It's really interesting to me. Throughout this series, I've tried to make the case that God has a design for sexuality and that sexual intimacy really matters to God. And it might seem like, what's the big deal, what I do in the privacy of my bedroom, but this is something God designed for a special reason, a special purpose in the marriage covenant, and so your abuse of that matters to God. It's important to him, and so Paul lists four different kinds of sexual sin here. He says sexual sin or sexual immorality, adultery, male prostitution, and homosexuality as four things that violate God's design. So I want to take you now to the most clear passage of all. This is in Romans, Romans chapter 1. And Paul is going to open up this letter after some pleasantries and a few opening statements with talking about some of the shameful things that he sees that people do that he's warning the believers in Rome about. In Romans 1.18, he says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then we jump down to verse 24. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. What does he mean by that? What are the shameful things their hearts desire? As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. What does he mean by that? They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they went against God's truth and, and followed after some lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So they, they rebelled against God's design in worshiping what God created instead of the creator, the designer. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. What is he talking about here? Here we go. Even the women turned against the natural way or the God-given way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. Spelled out pretty clearly. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Notice how specific the language is here about God's perspective on same-sex sexual intimacy. People had desires in their heart that were shameful. They acted on them and did vile things with their bodies. Paul says they traded God's truth for a lie, and in doing this, they worshiped the creation instead of the creator. They, they distorted God's design and worshiped that instead by rebelling against him. And Paul says God abandoned them to this. What does that mean? He allowed their free will. His abandoning of them to their shameful desires was him saying, I have given you free will. I allow you to make these choices, even though they go against what I want for you, even though they're a direct rebellion against me. 
even though I hate what you're doing and I know that it's bad for you. Then Paul gets even more specific in what he means by these vile things they did with their bodies when he says women turned against God's design to have sex with men instead having sex with each other. Men turned against God's design to the same thing. They had lust for each other, which we talked about last week, lust. Men did shameful things with other men and suffered consequences inside themselves for the distortion of God's design. What is he talking about there, the consequences that they suffer? I don't know for sure, but it's possible that he's referring to the kinds of sexual diseases that can happen when there's sexual promiscuity. And it's likely that the people that would have been in Paul's audience would have known exactly what he was talking about and what he meant by that and had, had some um, idea of what that was. All of this tells me that I don't need to take you to Leviticus at all All I need to do is show you passages in the New Covenant and the New Testament to show you same-sex sexual intimacy is outside God's design. And it's not just outside God's design in a way that he still makes allowance for. It's a direct violation and rebellion against God's design and against him. And there are some Christians that will try to come up with kind of uh, versions and interpretations of these passages to say, no, but it's really talking about this. And, and it, well, but God really is affirming of some same-sex relationships, but it's honestly, it's just not there in the text. Even the descriptions of what is offered to let us know what they mean by that tell us this is not talking about certain types of same-sex sexual intimacy. God had a design for marriage. He had a design for sexual intimacy. And two people of the same sex engaging in that type of behavior is a violation of his design. It seems fairly clear from God's word. 96% of people who have same-sex attraction, according to one study I saw, have prayed and asked God to take it away. Most of the people that I've talked to that have same-sex attraction, and from what I understand, most of the people out there with same-sex attraction understand that the Bible has something to say about this not being okay. 83% of people with same-sex attraction, according to one study a few years ago, said that they grew up in the church and they grew up hearing about this. And so whether or not God's word actually says this is a problem is not in great dispute. There are some people that are trying to argue that, but their position doesn't doesn't hold a lot. A, A few years ago, there were a couple of women that visited our church and I greeted them out in the lobby. This was before covid and uh, I you know, got to know them, asked about their story, and, and you know, they, they shared more than I was anticipating. One of them uh, had broken up with her husband a couple years prior. They had two kids together, and she had entered into a lesbian relationship with the other woman who was in front of me. And they wanted to know what I believed and what this church believed about their relationship. What do we have to say about same? They wanted to get married too. What do we have to say about that? And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be a short conversation and a short visit. And they're probably not going to like what I have to say, but I'm I'm going to say it anyway. I took them to efree.org slash beliefs, where for many years we have had a statement on human sexuality that is actually an EFCA statement that we adopted here as a church before I got here. By the way, I've heard that some people were very concerned what we were going to say in this series about this topic, Uh, but it's never been a secret, our position on this. It's all at efree.org slash beliefs. You can go go look up the statement on homosexuality there. It's currently being um, revised and and updated as well by the EFCA National Office, so I'm I'm excited about that because I think it'll 
there'll be some good improvements. But I told them about our stance on same-sex marriage and same-sex sexual activity, that it's outside God's design, and I thoroughly expected them to say, well, thanks for sharing, but that, that tells us this is not the church for us. And after I finished sharing, they said, oh, good, we're so glad to hear that. And I was not expecting that. And they said, here's the thing. We've been going to this other church in St. Louis that is very affirming of our lifestyle, very supportive of what we're doing, actually. But we know that the Bible says it's wrong. And we want to go somewhere that actually teaches the Bible, even if we are choosing not to follow it in some ways. I got to say, I respect that position. There are times where I choose not to follow the Bible in some ways. But to still say, I want to go somewhere that really teaches the truth of God's word. It wasn't a question to them of whether or not that's what God said. And they wanted to be somewhere that actually taught God's word. Now, I have not seen them after COVID. I, that's why I share this story. If, if I thought they were still here, I probably wouldn't share that story. But I give them a lot of credit for pursuing a place that's actually going to teach what God's word says, even if it doesn't feel good or align with, with their views for their own life. Same-sex sexual intimacy is clearly a violation of God's design for marriage and for sex. Marriage is a covenant created by God between a man and a woman. It's witnessed by God. He's a party to that covenant. Sex is the special thing that's designed to be enjoyed by a man and woman in that covenant. We talked about that with Song of Solomon. Any use outside of the marriage covenant for sex between a man and woman inside that marriage covenant, any use outside of that is a violation of God's design. And he says it's actually rebellion against him. It's in the same list as greed, idolatry, and even forced slavery. So it's a big deal to God. However, I also want to draw your attention to some other things in that list. See, some Christians have acted like homosexuality is just the worst sin out there. You know, there's, there's people who cheat on their taxes, and there, then there's the, the people that, that, you know, will lie and then there's the people that will steal a little bit, you know, and then there's the people that hurt somebody else. And then way up there is the homosexuals. It's such a terrible thing, such a terrible, disgraceful sin, people think, and have throughout history. You know what else is on that list? Adultery, murderers, promise breakers. What did Jesus say about adultery again? If you look with lust in your heart, you've committed the sin of adultery. And about murder, if you've hated someone, You've committed the sin of murder. Has anybody ever, you don't have to raise your hand, think inside your head. <laughs> Has anyone ever hated somebody else? Have you ever looked with lust? Have you ever broken a promise? You're on the list. The same list. There's no hierarchy here. You're on the list. We're all on this list somewhere. And so we have to be gracious with people whose sin struggle is different than our sin struggle because our sin struggle is on the same list. Be careful what you say to people, what you say about people, the way you treat people, the love that you show. Because you're on the list too. Now I've just shared in the last 20 minutes or so very bluntly what God's word has to say about this area because our, our time is is short here. 
and, and I, I know that I could have spent a lot more time on it and parsed through the nuances, but I, I don't think that's the best use of our time because I wanna use the remaining minutes I have to give some thoughts for and some guidance, especially for people who are attracted to the same sex. And I've already talked to some of you in this church and there's undoubtedly more who, you know, I, I wouldn't know that, but I wanna give you some advice that I believe is based on God's word for what you do with that. And then I also wanna share something for everyone that maybe is not in that category as well. The first thing I wanna to say to those of you who experience same-sex attraction is that same-sex attraction is not a sin and it does not make you any more broken than anyone else. We've covered that before in this series too. The attraction or the temptation, you could call it, is not the sin. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he did not sin. I am attracted to all sorts of sin. The attraction is not the sin. Acting on it is. Whether it's a physical action, or whether, as Jesus said, it's a lustful dwelling on. Those are the sins. The attraction, or the orientation, or the temptation, whatever way you want to phrase that, is not actually what is the sin. It's the lust or the acting on it that's the sin. That's the first thing I want to tell you. We need to under, and we need to understand that. People who are attracted to the same sex are not a, a pariah. They're people who have a different sin attraction than you have. Chances are you have other sin attractions too if you're not in that category. Number two, same-sex attraction is not your identity. And this, this is true whether you follow Jesus or not. Same-sex attraction is not your identity. We already had a whole message on identity, and if you're a Christ follower, what your identity is, it's not in your work, it's not your popularity, it's not your marital status, it's not your parental status, it's not your wealth, it's not your sexual desire, it's not your gender expression. You're a creation of God. If you're a believer, you're a child of God. Some Christians who have same-sex attraction will refer to themselves as gay Christians. And this is a, a debate in the the Christian community, for those that have same-sex attraction, whether or not they should use that term, there are people on both sides of it. What I'm gonna say to you is not a, um, it's not a biblical command or anything. This is, this is what I would put in the conviction bucket, but I, I wanna share some wisdom for you on this. I don't think it's wise. I recommend against referring to yourself as a gay Christian because it's confusing on two levels. First, people don't know what that means. They don't know if that means you are practicing and acting on your same-sex attraction, or if you are not doing that and you're trying to follow God's design for sexual intimacy in your life, but that just identifies what your attraction is. And so for that reason, I don't recommend using the phrase, the identifier for yourself as a gay Christian, but there's another reason too, which is it takes on an identity label as if sexual desire is what's most important in your life. As if the fact that I'm attracted to someone of the same sex is the thing I need to have a label for and tell people about. If you are a gay Christian, you're a Christian, full stop. And you're a Christian that may be attracted to people of the same sex. You know what? There are Christians that struggle with alcoholism and anger issues and excessive eating or what the Bible calls gluttony or with lustful thoughts toward the opposite sex. And none of us should elevate the sinful thing we're attracted to or the sinful behavior we're attracted to to identity status. There are Christians that struggle with depression, and I'm not saying this is a sinful thing. Please don't draw that equation here. I'm trying to make an analogy here. There are Christians who struggle with depression. None of us would say, well, that's just who you are. You're a depressed Christian. 
me give you a better one. There are Christians who struggle with gossip. None of us upon learning that would say, ah, that's who you are. You're a gossiping Christian. It's part of your identity. Don't put your attraction to sin in your identifier. You're a Christian. If, if you are a Christian, you're a Christian. You're a child of God, even if you're not. You're, you're created in the image of God. Let that be your identity. Now, that's, that's a conviction bucket issue. The next part's a, a dogma issue. This is in the gospel. Find your identity in being a created being of God in the image of God and find your identity if you're a follower of Jesus and being a child of God. That's where our identity should be found. Number three, sin struggles are usually not chosen and they may be present from birth or developed at a very young age. All of us have attractions to sin and most of us probably cannot remember a time when we decided, you know what? I think I'm gonna be attracted to that particular sin doesn't matter when it started, when it happened, if it's something you were born with, predisposed with it, genetic, inherited, upbringing, happened before you can remember, it makes no difference. You can't use the argument, God made me this way to excuse the behavior. You cannot say, as long as I can remember, I have had a struggle with addiction, and so God must have made me this way so I can give in to it. Don't use the idea that you can't remember when it started, or maybe we're even born with it as an excuse to say, therefore God must have made me this way and so it's okay if I go outside his design for me. That doesn't fly for any sin attraction. Number four, Jesus is the path to freedom from sinful desires. Second Corinthians five says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to him through himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus became your sin offering. He took your sin on himself and took it to the cross so that you can have freedom from sin and be made right with God. That's what he did for you. Does that mean that when you believe in him, the temptation is gonna go away? Usually not. I could, for example, ask all of the opposite sex attracted men in the room. I'm not going to, but I could. Ask all of you straight men, after you trusted Jesus, did the temptation to lust over women go away? Did that just get resolved in your life? No. No, that doesn't go away. It's not like we become a follower of Jesus and suddenly those temptations are gone. Those attractions are gone. It may be something that we wrestle with for our entire life. This is not just true for those with same-sex attraction. This is true for all of us. It continues to be something that we have to work on and surrender to God and allow him to work in our life as he continues to grow us. But our responsibility, according to God's word, is that we run from sexual immorality. We flee sexual immorality. And by the way, the best way to do that is to just run right to God. You run right into God's grace. And the Bible says that 
that the children of God are stewards of God's varied grace in this world. And so one of the best things you can do if this is a struggle for you or with whatever struggle you have is go to the children of God and say, I'm struggling with this, I need you to help me. Because the Bible says that we, the children of God, are his grace stewards here for God to help use us to make an impact in each other's lives. So if you're struggling with a sinful attraction, tell your small group, tell a Christian counselor, tell a trusted mentor, tell a pastor, get people in your corner who can walk with you through this because that's how God uses us to help each other through these issues. There's a group in St. Louis called First Light that does this as well. You can, you can work with them. They have, they have a link on our website at the Created Connect page. Number five, in addition to marriage, the Bible also teaches a theology of singleness. This is why we included that already in this series. To be single is not to be broken. Doesn't matter what orientation you are, what attraction you have. There's a theology of singleness there. Now, this may be the right course of action for some same-sex attracted people. Singleness may be the way to go. Uh, for some reason, it always gets referred to as celibacy. That makes it all about the sex. It's just singleness. Whether you're attracted to the opposite sex or the same sex, it doesn't matter. For some people, God has given a gift of singleness, and that may be what's right for you. Now, for some people with same-sex attraction, although I think this seems to be very rare, they report that they have eventually seen their attraction switch. And it doesn't appear to be there's anything you can do to make that happen. That may just be something that God has done for certain people, but I've heard from people who have said, yes, I was attracted to the same sex, and, and God changed that in my life. And praise God, that's... That's wonderful. And so then, then they can find someone who they're attracted to of the opposite sex and a marriage works out for them. In other instances, there are people who report that they have same-sex attraction, but they met someone of the opposite sex and they're not attracted to anybody else of the opposite sex, but that person they are. And they find themselves attracted to that person, even sexually. And they, they get married and that can work as long as they work at it just like any other marriage. There are some cases where someone with same-sex attraction has met someone of the opposite sex, and it's not like their attractions have changed, but remember the intimacy wheel, how there's a lot more intimacy than just sexual? And they find that they love each other, they care about each other, they want to enter a marriage covenant together, they're gonna do their best to, to um, meet each other's sexual intimacy needs in that, but that's really not what it's all about for them usually, there's so much else to that, and so that's called a mixed orientation marriage. And, and there are stories I've seen of followers of Jesus who have decided that that is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to enter into a marriage covenant with this person of the opposite sex. It is all within God's design. Doesn't mean my attraction went away. Doesn't mean that my struggle in that area went away. But this is going to work for me. And that's within God's design. That can work. Uh, it could be singleness. It could be one of those examples of marriage that I talked about. Those are all valid options for same-sex attracted Christians. What's not a valid option is to go outside God's design and have sexual intimacy with the same sex or a same-sex marriage. That is outside of God's design. But there's nothing wrong with singleness. There's nothing wrong with that. And for many people, they say that is the best option for them. It can be a gift of God. I got to meet someone a couple months ago. His name is Dr. Christopher Yuan, and he wrote a book called Holy Sexuality. I heard him give his, he shared his story. Uh, it's amazing. And if this is an area that resonates with you in any way, I would recommend you get that book. It's linked on our website, Holy Sexuality, to hear his journey and, uh, and how he, he explored this for himself. He has great things to say. He's a Bible professor now, great guy. Number six, 
if you're someone that has same-sex attraction, I want you to know that God loves you, I love you, and your church loves you. Too often, churches have been placed, um, not necessarily intentionally, but of shame and, and discouragement and even animosity. And I've heard some of the worst stories, and I don't think most churches are representative of the worst stories that I've heard, but sometimes it's just, it's just an awkwardness or an exclusion, or sometimes it's an indifference or, or just not wanting to be associated with a person, and it hurts for people with same-sex attraction to feel like they can't be real about their struggles in the church that's supposed to be a hospital for sinners. It's supposed to be a place where they can go and, and be honest about what their struggles are and find that grace and that accountability from other people. The fact that 83% say that they grew up in a, in a Christian church. And many of those people wouldn't darken the door of a church now. But if you have same-sex attraction, you need to know that God loves you, I love you, and our church loves you. And we want what's best for you. We don't wanna just put you in a, in a box or put restrictions on you. We just want you to thrive and flourish under God's design, just like we want that for everyone else. And we know it's not gonna be easy. No sin struggle is, really, I think. All of us have struggles that we'll deal with for our entire life. But as a church, we need to say, we are going to be loving and gracious and kind with people who have different sin attractions than we do. Now, I'm gonna ask you to do something kind of uh, risky, but I think it's important. I'm gonna ask you if you are willing and you agree with what I just said about loving people with different sin attractions, loving people with same-sex attraction or all sorts of different things, and you will commit to be loving and gracious toward those people, I'm gonna ask you if you would to just stand up right now. You don't have to. I have going through my mind right now uh, some faces of people that I've known for a long time who uh, struggle with same-sex attraction and have in some cases been mistreated by Christians and will probably never enter a church again. And I prayed for them today. I wonder if you know people who have in some way been turned off to God because God's people are flawed. And maybe in some cases, it's how you've treated them. Maybe in some cases, you need to go to people and, and apologize and say, you know what? I have not been loving to you. I have not been gracious to you. I have a message that I wanna share for everybody but especially for people that are not in that category of same-sex attracted person. And the first thing I wanna tell you is, homosexuals are not ruining our country. Sin is. My sin is on that list. Chances are your sin is on that list. We've got to stop focusing on a group of people and saying, that's what's wrong. 
It's sin. And yeah, there's sinful activity there. There's sinful activity all around. To go along with that, it doesn't matter if people are born gay or not. Jesus says you must be born again. That's what matters. If you're going to go on a crusade, if you're going to get loud, make sure the thing you're loudest about is salvation through Jesus Christ. The last thing I want to say, the last thing I want you to walk away with is that God always prefers to use kindness to turn people from sin. This is a shock to some people. God prefers to use kindness to turn people from sin. I'm not making that up. The very next chapter to the one we looked at today in Romans 1, the very next chapter, Paul says this, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Some versions say it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So my challenge to all of us is that we need to follow the model of our heavenly father. We need to be willing to do the same. We need to be so kind and gracious to people who may struggle with an area of attraction to sin that we don't have, but that doesn't mean God loves them any less. That doesn't mean we should treat them any differently. That doesn't mean we should be less welcoming of them. That's the kind of church we need to be. I'm gonna ask you if you would just bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Let's talk to our Heavenly Father. God, I feel like we as a church, we as a church in this country, we as Christians, we need to confess. We have too often been unloving and ungracious to people that you love. And I know that probably no one here is involved in the worst examples of this. But still we can be exclusionary. We can by, by little comments that we make or things that we say or don't say or who we're willing to talk with or invite out to lunch or whatever it is. Or just little, little snarky statements sometimes. We can give the impression that we are unloving towards certain groups of people. And that should never be the case. So God, I pray that you would purify our hearts, that you would help us to see people through your eyes. I pray for anyone here today or watched online who maybe we've talked about their sin struggle today. God, I pray that you would give them the strength and the courage to live within your design for them, whatever that looks like for them. Because we know that you have a wonderful path for them and it, it could 
look like a few different things, but it definitely doesn't involve violating your design for marriage, for covenant, for sexual intimacy. God, I pray that you would help them to live within your design and find flourishing and and great joy and contentment and satisfaction in that, as we've seen so many people do. God, I pray for all of us that you would help us to be gracious and loving toward people that we disagree with. We may disagree with the way they live, the things that they do. Remember that these are all people that you love. And so may we be loving of them as well, Lord. We, we confess the sin of indifference and the sin of disgust and the sin of unlovingness. And we ask for your love to fill us up that we can then be your stewards of grace to other people. We praise you, Jesus, for coming into this world and dying for us so that our sins can be forgiven. Help us, Lord, to live in that freedom and to not be bound by that sin anymore. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stay standing and worship God together.